Here. Here on. Okay. Hey. Now I don't have my Bible, so what does A signify? Um, yeah, Holy Spirit, breath, a uh, couple other things. I can't remember. Anyway, yes. Sorry, I fell short. So, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments. For I delight in it. Find my heart to your testimonies, not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things, things, and revive me in your way. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach with which I dread, for your judgments are good. Hold and long for your precepts. Revive me to righteousness. Uh, good stuff. Okay, here we got some prayer requests. And, mine reads, uh, turn away my eyes from watching CNN. Yeah, turn, yeah, no watching CNN. Uh, they're taking a dive anyway. Yep. Hey, Tom. Uh, we got some, uh, you know, this list of prayer requests for uh, individuals that need Jesus. Uh, when Lee was here, he uh, was here, he uh, wrote down. His friend Tony, Tony Costango, I guess is how you pronounce that. He wrote his name down, and he said, this guy will be the last person before the rapture if he makes it at all. He wants nothing to do with Jesus. And, yeah, as he was writing this down in Sarasota, his friend was accepting the Lord. And uh, so we can cross him off of our need-to-be-saved yes. list. Uh, yeah, it was rather amazing. So praise the Lord for that. And we have the people that we pray for there. And then, of course, we have... Um, uh, some prayer requests. Lynn is moving from Oregon to Washington. He's uh, feeling the stress. And if you've ever moved, you know that he's uh, older too. And uh, so he's not 20 years old. And so it's a stress when you're moving. Um, Freda, our sister Freda, who comes on Thursday night, died on 28 February. And so she's with the Lord and uh, exactly where she wanted to be. So we're very happy about that, even though we will miss her. And then Barb is having the top third of her lung removed on March 9th in Calgary. They're going to go from Alberta, wherever I think is where they live, to Calgary to have that done. She's asked for prayer. Her husband did, Fred. And uh, David Young is a Jewish boy. He was struck by a car on Tuesday night, multiple fractures and damage to his face. He's got air and blood on the brain, but he's coherent. And then uh, we've also been asked to pray for his best friend, Ziv, Zev, Z-E-V, who is his best friend and is very shaken up. And then I got this report this morning on him. The best news is David's cerebral hemorrhaging has stopped and is he's being monitored closely. His faculties are all intact, including a sense of humor. His face took the brunt of the car versus pedestrian accident when he fell, but ligaments in his leg were torn off at the bone and knee and ankle, so his one leg is badly damaged. In his face, it remains too swollen to repair, but he has one eye socket that is fractured and the eye is swollen shut. His nose is smashed and essentially gone, and he has jaw fractures, and the doctors have indicated he will probably never smell or taste again. So uh, it, more than anything, they are asking that we pray for his salvation. He's a Jewish boy. He's a good friend of, uh, of Zev, and uh, they're just asking that this will be the thing that brings him to the Lord. But we also want to pray for his health. And a uh, very difficult time there. Becky in Colorado walking. is, what's that? Walking or bicycling? Uh, I don't know. Becky in Colorado is still having all kinds of difficulties, and she's asked for continued prayer. And uh, then one more 
announcement, because I don't want to forget this, is that Saturday you have to move your clocks forward. So if you get this uh, on YouTube or streaming or whatever, make a note, your clock goes forward Saturday night. Because if you don't, then you're going to be late for church, and then you'll be given three lashes with a wet noodle. So uh, be sure to move your clock forward on Saturday night. But we're going to pray for these people right now before we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence, and we thank you for the life that uh, was and is Freda. She's in your presence now, and uh, we just thank you that we got to know her and that uh, she was a part of this church, even if uh, she had difficulties in life. Those are behind her now, and we thank you for that. And Lord, we certainly thank you for Tony's salvation. What a blessing that is to hear, and we're very thankful about that, that you intervened in somebody's life that uh, totally unexpected, but what a joy to hear. And uh, so we'll just uh, make ourselves available to him if he ever has any questions or anything he needs from the church, we'll try to be available to him for that. And then we also pray for each one of these people that was just mentioned in the very difficult times that uh, they've been facing. And we'd like to also add in Linda, who had a bad accident this week and her face has uh, suffered some damage and her, her wrist as well. We wanna pray for her. And uh, we want to just ask that you will uh, be with these people as they heal and as they mend or uh, as they have to go through reconstructive surgery or whatever it is, that you will be with them and that you will be glorified through what happens. So, Lord, we pray for these things, and we also pray that you bless this class. And if there's something that's said in the next hour plus that uh, is not correct, that you would uh, lead people to what is the correct use of your word and not a mishandling of it but we would pray that would not be the case that what is taught here is proper either way lord we thank you for the chance to get into your word and we thank you in jesus name amen amen okay we have um a couple that just arrived just arrived they attend the superior word church online and they just arrived from the uk and uh, it's uh, benzer and sandra and they're uh uh I know I pronounce it with American pr pronunciation, so if somebody in their family is watching, it doesn't sound like that at all. But anyway, <laughs> uh, they were very glad to have you here. They'll be here for about a week, and uh, I don't know if uh, they have any free time. If anybody wants to entertain them, they're here for that. And uh, Sundays and Mondays, I can't do anything. But uh, other than that, um, it's wonderful to have you. And then this is your last time here, right? I mean, tonight, you guys are leaving Saturday morning, is it? Sunday. Su Sunday. Yeah, I've asked you that four times, and I still can't get it right. But uh, uh, it's been wonderful having you guys here. And we hope that you have a really safe and warm time up there in the great white north. And Miss Garrett, it's good to have you here. We love you. Um, so... Uh, they got some sun, but yeah, they're they're going to be back up in Maine here. Maine, where? Not New Hampshire. Maine. Okay, I'm right. I, I, I my brain is just always broken. So Maine, they're going to be back up there very soon, and they'll be. Uh, I hope it'll be a nice warm time when you get there. I know you got a couple more weeks at least. Oh, good. Oh, it's in the 40s. Okay, so here that's freezing cold. You know that, but okay, we're uh, we're gonna get started. We're in uh, two Corinthians still, and we're starting chapter eight today. So we're in verse one. Now, have you got the NIV or the New King James? Oh, okay, well then there's no point in you reading. We're supposed to be able to well, analyze. Okay, but like I'm gonna be okay. that's all right. Go ahead. Uh, eight one. 
Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Okay, there we go. Let me pull out my notes and we'll get started with that. I'm just so happy about Lee's friend coming to the Lord. It, it just astonishes me how the Lord works, so how wonderful. Okay, uh, let's see here. Having settled the issue of chapter 7, Paul now turns to the subject of the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. It is a collection that he was personally coordinating and preparing to take, along with designated representatives to Jerusalem. In order to spur on the Corinthians in their promised giving, he begins uh, brings in what has occurred in the churches of Macedonia. Now, I would like to say this, and this isn't for the church here specifically, because we don't have the giving the way that other churches do as far as collections and stuff like that. But if you are attending a church and you just watch these Bible studies, but you have another church you attend, some churches will ask you, you know, for a commitment on missions budget at the beginning of the year because they have to plan the missions budget. And then they'll, I've been in churches where they'll say, what do you plan on giving throughout the year? You know, some churches do, some churches don't. But to me, if you decide you're not going to be in that church anymore, you don't need to give to that church anymore because you're not benefiting from them. But if you have committed to a mission budget at the beginning of the year, in a church, you need to fulfill that because they, those people are overseas. They are expecting the money to be able to continue their mission work. And you're a part of that church at that time. And you've committed that. And I actually left a church in the middle of the year one year. And I made sure that what I committed for missions was paid through the year. You know, the church, that's your church or it's not your church. But I, I just have this thing in me that if you have committed to help a missionary for a certain amount of time, you should probably continue with that because they are, even though they're being funded by this church and this church and this church, they're relying on you. And that's kind of what's going on here. These are a collection that has been gathered for the saints down in Jerusalem. These people have committed to that. And Paul wants to make sure that it gets through. So with that in mind, that's just my thoughts. If you don't do it, that's your choice. I'm just saying that that's what I think is right, is missionaries are kind of in a different category than the rest of the church. So be sure to take care of your missionaries. Um, Ecclesiastes say something about keeping the vows. Uh, yeah, it, perform your vows. That's what it says. It says that in the Psalms as well. You want to perform your vows. And if you vowed something, whereas, like I said, if you're in a church and you're no longer satisfied with that church, why would you give to it? That doesn't make any sense to me. But the missionaries may be a different category. And that's for you to consider. I'm just appealing to you for the sake of people that may be harmed by your leaving a church. There you go. Um, to set this up, he calls those in Corinth, meaning the uh, gift for from the brothers in Macedonia, he calls those in Corinth brethren again. He has and will continue to endear himself to them in order to keep the idea of brotherly affection alive throughout the entire epistle. Through sternness or through petition, he calls them brethren to remind them of their favored status in his eyes. After so addressing them, he says that we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches in Macedonia. Grace is unmerited favor. It's something you can't earn. God had lavished this upon them, and Paul will continue to explain it in the verses ahead. As God was graceful to them, then it would be right that they would in turn grant grace as well. By bringing in the Macedonian churches in this way, it will allow for a little healthy competition between the Macedonians and the Corinthians. And this is what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to stimulate giving and especially the promised giving by people so that a nice sized, you know, gift is going to be taken down to 
Jerusalem. All right. In this, Paul knows that the gift he will take to Jerusalem can only be increased. You know, when I was at this one church where they had, they it was a church of about 40 people, maybe regular attendees, maybe 50. They supported, not wholly, but they supported in part 60 missionaries in a teeny little church of about 40 people. Plus they had the, you know, the pastor salary and they had this and that. They supported 60 missionaries. And that's, that's a huge amount of people for such a small church. And like I said, they didn't fully fund it, but they helped in this particular endeavor. And so what they would do at the beginning of the year is they would get everybody excited. They'd have missionaries come in that were, you know, uh, taking their time off for the year and they'd have them talk to you. And then they'd, they got everybody excited about missions. And they would talk about what they did, the people that had converted, you know, the languages they had to learn, whatever. And so it was a time of getting people stimulated. That is what Paul is doing right here. That church followed the Paul model, at least in that respect. So there you go with that. Um, he, uh, he's a wise and careful soul doing the work of the Lord in a remarkable way. He's bringing them in. He's trying to get them stimulated, and he's doing it in a remarkable way. Got a life application there. There is nothing wrong with stimulating others to do their best and encouraging others through comparisons in order to do so. However, it is wrong to manipulate people to give. Unfortunately, and I've seen this as well, many churches do manipulate their congregants through inappropriately handling the Bible or shaming them into giving. If you are in such a church, find another one, which puts the highest value on what is right and proper and not on money. Okay, I've seen churches, they even do it online. You know, these televangelists, they, you know, they, they take verses out of context from the Old Testament, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And one that's spoken to national Israel, it's not spoken to individuals at all. Okay, if Israel is obedient to the precepts, the Lord will bless them. You can't expect to have a, a harvest of a crop in your backyard if you don't have a crop in your backyard. Okay, they're misapplying these things. They're taking things out of context. And as we all know in this church, because we've heard it four million times, tithing is an Old Testament precept. It is not a New Testament precept. And we're going to go through that more here and in other verses from the uh, uh, later epistles. But it is not something that should ever be taught in a New Testament church. It is a precept only taught under the law. It's taught incorrectly by every church I've ever heard teach it. It's not taught correctly. They say you need to tithe every year. Well, that's true. In Israel, they tithed every year, but for two years, they ate their tithe. They didn't give it away. The third year, it was given away to support the widow and the orphan and the Levites who have no inheritance among them. Okay, The third year alone, that tithe was taken from them. Any other things that happened in the Old Testament, like the king, uh, you know, taxing the people. Remember when David uh, heard that uh, anybody that uh, slays Goliath, they will be exempt from taxes in Israel. It just says exempt, but you can infer that it's taxes. That's completely separate. That has nothing to do with the tithing system of the law of Moses. That You know, that's just like us. We pay taxes in America. Some states have taxes. Most do. I'm talking about state taxes. And then you have the very few that don't like Florida. Good job. And we're very prosperous because of that, because we're not being milked by the government. And instead we can reinvest our money. And it, it's always better to not have taxes. But that's all separate when you hear that kind of stuff in there. I'm talking about tithing, which is mandated under the law of Moses, is never to be taught in a New Testament church. And if you're in a church that teaches tithing, I would recommend that you first talk to the pastor about why he does it, show them why he's wrong. And then if he doesn't listen, then I'd say, I'm going to have to find another church because this is not appropriate. This is an inappropriate use of a New Testament 
situation. Okay, that's just my thing. You do whatever you want with that. If you love your church and you've been there for 50 years, stay. But it is not right for somebody to inappropriately teach simply to have the church, you know, benefit from it. Whatever. Okay, 8-2. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded, riches their liberality. Okay, good stuff there. Um, I'll qualify this before I go on and analyze the verse he gave. If you want to know where that is, if you've never heard that before, that they gave away the tithe every third year, okay, and they ate it the other two years, that's Deuteronomy 14. So start in verse 22 and just read to the end of the chapter, and that's where that's recorded, Deuteronomy 14, verse 22, and then right down to the end of the chapter. We'll be going through that very soon because we're starting the Deuteronomy sermons next week, but... It is also recorded in Deuteronomy 26, verse 12, where it says when you give your tithe uh, in the third year, the year of the tithe. So that's Deuteronomy 26, 12. The Lord said it twice because he doesn't want people to be brought into some type of bondage that is not actually stated in the Old Testament, okay, or in the law of Moses, I should say. And then it's stated a third time in Amos 4, verse 4. You bring your tithes every third year. Now, some translations will say every third year every three days. That's yeah. incorrect, okay? The reason why is uh, the word is yamim, and it can mean years. It, yamim simply means days, okay? It's just an indeterminate amount of time, every third days, but it means every third year based on Deuteronomy 14 and Deuteronomy 26. But that's where the thing about tithing is. So go read those verses, and we'll give you a full analysis of that in just a, you know, it'll be Deuteronomy uh, 14. It'll probably be sometime next year early, maybe January, February, something like that will be that far along. Maybe it'll be even quicker than that. I don't know. Um, but there you go. That's the verses in case you need those. So 8-2. Speaking of those in Macedonia, as Paul continues from verse 1, he says, the grace of God was bestowed upon them in a great trial of affliction. So it wouldn't you know, normally make any sense to say that we were afflicted, and that's God's grace, but that's how the Lord works. Paul three times asked for the thorn in the flesh to be taken from him, and what did the Lord say? My grace is sufficient for you. That's right. It seems contradictory, but it is not. John Chrysostom says they were not simply afflicted, but in such a way as to become approved by their endurance. Through their affliction, they were being molded. It is a theme which permeates all of Scripture. This affliction is partly, partially noted in Acts 16, 19, and 20, in Acts 17, 5, and 6. And further, Paul mentions the following to those in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says this, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 14, he says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. It is in this state of affliction that Paul continues with the words, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded, thank you, in the riches of their liberality. That's Paul's words. The deep poverty which permeated those in Macedonia came about for a couple of reasons. The first is that in their persecution, they may have been denied suitable employment or even robbed of their goods. Although written to the Hebrew believers, the same principle may have applied to the Gentiles, which is noted in Hebrews chapter 10, where it says this. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 34 says, For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods 
knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. All right, same kind of thought. Another reason is that Macedonia and Achaia never recovered from the three wars between Caesar and Pompeius, between the Triumphers and Brutus and Cassius, and between Augustus and Antonius. Under Tiberius, they petitioned for a diminution of their burdens and were accordingly transferred for a time from the jurisdiction of the Senate to that of the emperor as involving a less heavy taxation. That is Charles Ellicott's thoughts on that particular situation that's going on over there. Despite these things, they gave in a great way to sustain the saints in Jerusalem. As the pulpit commentary notes, their joy overflowed their affliction and their liberality overflowed their poverty. In this, they had a singleness of purpose in providing a substantial donation for what they believed was truly a worthy cause. Now, I will say this. I said it during a sermon or maybe just during the uh, Sunday morning, um, I don't know, a few months ago, but I did not say it during the Bible class. It's something that we need to try to consider in our own lives is that I traveled to all 50 states in 2010. And I preached at all the capitals, and it was a challenge to people. I will go and do this. I'll preach at all of the capitals. I want you to read your Bible uh, every day for 30 minutes while I'm gone. And by the time I get back, you will have completed the Bible. And so people took up the challenge. It was called the uh, Capital Adventure, My Adventure, 50-State Challenge, their challenge, okay? And there are people that still read their Bible every single day because of that. that. That is worth more to me than anything that it costs to go around the nation. But when I went around, you know, people would say, oh, well, you know, I'm in Pennsylvania, and if you come by this way, would you stay with us? Or I'm in, you know, wherever, and would you stay with us? And I had a couple friends that I uh, have moved from Sarasota, and they said, would you come stay with us? Can we help you, ma'am? <laughs> oh, that's my wife. I just didn't realize that she was coming so late. Um, so anyway, as I went around, um, I, I told the people in the church this. I, as I went around, I stayed with some people that were pretty well off. And, uh, you know, they took care of me, and it was very nice, and I appreciated it. And then I stayed with, in particular, one person in Philadelphia. It was the poorest family that I stayed with the entire time I went around, and they treated me literally like a king. They spent their last $10 to get a giant thing of food for us, me and a boy that had come with me for eight states, and they, they didn't want me going out without food. And I said, we're fine, you know, no. We want to do this for you. And they, they cooked. It was the best spaghetti I think I've ever had in my life. And we ate it in love for days after that. But uh, when people are in poverty, I know because I've lived in some really poor places in this world. When people are in poverty, they are so giving because they don't have anything to lose. They have nothing to lose. And so what they have is yours. And then when we tend to get richer in our lives, we want to secure ourselves. And, well, we don't want to lose this and we don't want to lose that. And pretty soon... We, we take care of others in a much less way than we do when we're in a, a state of poverty. So I just want to say that for you to consider that when you think about people that are especially like in Papua New Guinea or if you're supporting a missionary, they're out there and they're doing something. They have devoted their life to it. Now, some people go on missions, and I understand. They go because they want to get away and they want to see the world and they want to have a good time. There are people like that. But there are people that really, really intend to go wherever the Lord sends them. And they join an organization, and that organization decides where they're going to go. It may be to the coldest place on the planet. It may be the jungle of Papua New Guinea. Those people are doing it because they love the thought of telling people about Jesus. 
And you can say, well, you know, we need to pay this bill and we need to pay that bill, but they need to pay their bills as well. So always open your hand to people, always, you know, that have that type of a need. I just would like to make that appeal because I guarantee you that the poor people that support them, support them with a much greater percentage of their, yeah, than what you do. I, I guarantee you. I absolutely guarantee you, if a poor person here in America will say they make $20,000 a year and they're helping a missionary, they may give something which is equal to, I don't know, I'm just make up a percentage, 5% of what they make. Whereas you, if you're making, I'm just giving numbers, 100 grand a year, you may give 1% of what you make. And that that's natural. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. That's the natural way of humanity. But you have to willingly step outside of those bounds and say, I am going to do this for these people. So just please consider the that. The joyous heart. The joyous heart. That's right. Have a joyous heart and never do anything out of compulsion because if you're doing it out of compulsion, it is not of faith. And if it is not of faith, it is sin. That's what the Bible says. And you will get no rewards for anything that isn't of faith. Given faith, don't tell anybody what you're doing. Just be good to the people that are ministering the Lord's ministry around this world because they do need you. Uh, life application. It is often those, oh, it's exactly, exactly what I was, it is often those who make the least who give the most. As wealth increases, the amount given percent-wise tends to drop. And so giving becomes less about what hurts than what will keep from hurting. Each should give as they feel is appropriate and without compulsion, but the wealthy who give large amounts should not look down on the poor who give small amounts. In the end, they may be giving more than the wealthy on a comparative basis. Okay, just something for you to consider. All right, 8-3. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. There you go. They're a poor, the Macedonians were the poor people, and yet they were freely willing. Speaking of giving by the Macedonians, a group who had little to begin with, Paul says, I bear witness about them. He knew them, and he personally knew of the circumstances concerning the gift they had offered. It was according to their ability. This means that they gave as they were able. It is a precept he will lay down in the next chapter for those in Corinth, and thus for us when we give. This is seen in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, where he says this, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, here it is, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God lives, loves a cheerful giver. I will ask you this, and I expect the same answer out of everybody. Think it through before you answer. Is tithing willingly and not of necessity? Absolutely not. Therefore, you are causing a person to violate Scripture when you teach tithing in your church. Okay, I'm saying this to anybody that listens that may be preaching tithing on their Sunday sermon. Stop doing that because you are violating Scripture. You are violating what Paul is saying in the New Testament. We are to give willingly and without compunction and without compulsion and without being forced to and any other word that you can think of that fits into that. If you teach tithing, you are not doing the service of the Lord. I, that's, I'm as confident about that as I am of any precept. And Jim's probably heard this 400 times because anytime somebody brings up tithing, I get into this and I keep talking about it for 20 minutes. So it just, it, it bothers me that people put that above the word. All what right? kills me though is that I, I have friends that are in churches that I, and um, you know, I say, well, we don't. Well, how do you pay bills? How do you like, you know, support missionaries? I'm like, okay, it's God's church. It's his church. Is if he, he going to let it sink? That's no, right. No, he won't. That's what, right. What you need, 
you'll get. You're not going to be, you know. That's absolutely right. The, it's the Lord's church. He will direct it according to his wisdom. That's exactly right. It's not the Lord's church. Well, then, <laughs> then, then they shouldn't be in that church anyway. That's, That's exactly so, right. Okay. If uh, this was all that was recorded, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, that I just read, if this was all that was recorded of their giving, we would know that they had done well and that their gift was a sufficient one to represent them as a faithful flock. However, this is not all that is said about it. Paul continues by saying that they gave according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. In the Greek, there is a stress which is lacking in the English. Paul briskly omits the verb, and so the adjective stands alone. In this, then, he shows the superlative nature of this particular gift. Regardless of the size of it, it was one which actually exceeded the normal ability of these people to give. In other words, they would have to do with less in their normal lives in order to be able to afford this gift <laughs> given according to the call on their spiritual lives. They exceeded the budget for any normal operating of their day-to-day -day life, and not only that, but they did it without compulsion of any kind. The gift was mentioned, the reason for it was given, and without any external pressure at all, they simply were moved to act. On the Prophecy Update on Sunday, I made an appeal. I said, we got a guy that, he's a missionary in China, he uh, goes to Russia to get his visa renewed, okay? He might go to Hong Kong sometimes, he might go, but he'll, he'll he goes to over the border into Russia, and he will get it renewed. And while he was up there one time, he's always evangelizing. He's always passing out tracts and stuff. And he met some people that have a homeless, a Russian homeless shelter. And they wanted to build a building for these homeless people in Russia. And so he started a GoFundMe page. And then they also have an ag project where they grow food to sustain the place so that these people can learn how to grow. And, and uh, so he... Uh, he started a GoFundMe project for that. And I announced it a year or two ago, and it went up for a little while, and then it stopped. A couple people give once a month faithfully to this, faithfully. Other than that, it's just kind of leveled out. And so I mentioned it again on the Prophecy Update on Sunday, and a couple people, no compulsion. I don't, if they never respond, I would never know it. I would have no idea because I don't know who watches, and, you know, there are just people out there. And a couple people said, we would like to give to this ag project or this housing. I don't know which one, but I gave them the links and it's up to them. I won't see it. I don't know anything about it, but that is something that's the way it should be done with no compunction, no compulsion. Just let people decide on their own what to do. And a couple people did. And so, you know, hopefully they'll follow through with that and they'll take care of this. And, you know, some more money will go to meeting these people's needs. And I will say that last year I was the benefit of this, the recipient is uh, they were so thankful in Russia. I couldn't believe it. Hidako knows they sent a box of Russian chocolate to the house all the way from Russia to thank us for, you know, mentioning them and people helping them out. And Russian chocolate is not like ours. There was salt in it. It was bitter. It was it was really interesting. But, you know, if I brought it in here, there would have been a snap for you and a snap. For you. It wouldn't have been, you know, so I just ate it all. Anyway, <laughs> and there may be one piece left there. I mean, I, I ate it very slowly because it's so different than ours that, you know, I just thought whatever. But anyway, um, it was it was just nice that these people offered without, you know, like I say, if I mention something on a prophecy update and nobody responds, nobody knows that nobody responded. That's, or if somebody does, nobody knows it. So it's just without any compulsion at all. Anyway, here we go. Life application. Uh, how willing are you to tend to the church pastor or Bible teacher who ministers to you? 
Have you given according to your means in order to ensure that their needs are met? They are working in the most important matter of human existence in order to bring God's revelation of himself to you. Be sure to act in a manner which is in accord with that by gratefully returning care and provision to them. That's not an appeal for you to give to me. I typed this probably before I was preaching. Okay, I typed this at 2 Corinthians probably 8 or 10 years ago. So there you go with that. But that's just my life application. If you've got somebody that is teaching you at your church, go ahead and do what you feel is right. 8-4. Imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gifts and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Okay. The idea of this verse is that the Macedonians almost begged to be allowed to participate in adding to the gift which was being collected for the Jerusalem saints. It is as if Paul said to them, I'm gathering together a gift for the saints in Jerusalem because they are really in dire straits. On hearing this, the Macedonians, without any prompting at all, then said, well, let us help. From there, Paul may have said, listen, you all are almost in the same condition as they are. In response, they would have then begged, please allow us to give this gift. Although that is only a possible scenario for what occurred, it shows the general tenor of Paul's words. The Macedonians prayed that they could be a part of what was going on. It shows a true heartfelt attitude that excluded any sense of compulsion on Paul's part. He simply said what he was doing and they immediately desired to participate. Life application, when people feel giving is necessary, they will give. If they are the stingy sort and are placed under a guilt trip, the only thing that will happen is that resentment will build up in them. Begging for or mandating something that should be voluntary, voluntarily given is not a sound approach to meeting the needs of the saints. It may take care of the immediate need, but it is bound to cause other problems down the line, especially when it comes to the Bible and it's not something that you should be teaching, then you are corrupting the word of God by doing that. As I said, the New Testament never, never teaches tithing. The only time it's mentioned in the New Testament is when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and the scribes for their inappropriate giving. You tithe your uh, mint, dill, and cumin, but you forget the weightier, uh, the weighty, yes, matters of the law. Thank you. Okay, so he said it in that context. He was getting down on them for doing what they should have done, but doing it in the wrong way, and they're overlooking more important things. And then the only other time that tithing is mentioned in the New Testament is in anybody? It's in the book of Hebrews, where Paul Paul wrote Hebrews. I know it's not authored, but it is certain that he was the author of it. Anyway, whoever, will say the author of Hebrews explains the Levitical tithing system, not because he's mandating tithing, but he's making a point about Melchizedek and Abraham, and he's showing that Levi was in the loins of Abraham at that time. You can use that particular set of verses for all kinds of things, and one of them is the doctrine of original sin. We are all in Adam. Even though we don't exist when uh, we didn't exist, and we may not, we may never have existed, right? We're potentially in Adam, but, you know, there's billions of people that are potentially in Adam that will never exist, okay? Or you may have been born stillborn, or you may be alive and it doesn't matter. All human beings are potentially and actually, if they're alive, in Adam, okay? And he was making a theological point. So those are the only times that tithing is mentioned in the New Testament, and it never mandates it. And as I said, it is uh, a precept only found under the law of Moses. The law of Moses is set aside, it is annulled, it is obsolete, and it is nailed to the cross. So 
once again, I'm getting off on this thing, but it's just one of those precepts that I wish people would adhere to. Because you go into a church and they say, oh, we're New Testament, we're, we're New Testament. And then when it comes to that one issue, all of a sudden they go back to the law of Moses. And it doesn't matter what precept you take from the law of Moses. If you take it out of there, you're doing what Paul argues against in the book of Galatians in particular. You know, he says, if you allow yourself to be circumcised, the law means, I mean, I'm sorry, then grace means nothing to you. You're a debtor to the whole law. Okay, well, that's just one precept under the law of Moses. And so is tithing. So make sure that you keep your theology in its proper covenant, the new covenant in Christ. Okay, so go ahead. Next verse. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Okay, Paul is still speaking of those in Macedonia. Now remember, remember what he's doing here. He's speaking about the Macedonians, but he's writing to who? To Corinthians. That's right. He is stimulating them because he is going to go to Corinth and he's going to pick up a, a gift, a, a promised gift, and he doesn't want to get there and he doesn't want to be embarrassed. And he also wants them to know that these people that are poor have given this huge amount Whatever it is, it may be a small amount, but it's a huge amount in comparison to what they make, and he is trying to stimulate them to at least fulfill their vow and maybe even exceed it. That's the context of what's going on here. Speaking of those in Macedonia concerning their determination to give a gift for the benefit of the saints in Jerusalem. In the previous verse, he said they were imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Adding to that now, he says that this was not only as we had hoped, having learned of their zeal to give, they expected this poor congregation to put forward a small amount as an offering. Instead, they had far exceeded what they thought would be given. And more than that, they first gave themselves to the Lord. The congregation as a whole consecrated themselves to the matter, determining that what they had was set apart to the Lord, and therefore everything about the gift was sacred. They put their energy, their time, and their ability into preparing the gift. The entire process was considered as to the Lord. But Paul goes further and says that they gave themselves to us by the will of God. In this gift, they deferred to the directions and the wishes of the apostles for how it was to be gathered and administered. Instead of insisting that they handle the process as if out of fear of being mishandled, they trusted the apostles and their authority in the matter, knowing that they had been ordained by the will of God. Now, trust should only go so far. I, I am one that believes in the old military motto, trust but verify. That's right. Always trust but verify. Okay, especially when you're in a church. Trust but verify because, you know, you want to make sure that people are doing the right thing. But there you go with that. In this, those in Macedonia had followed a sound pattern of yielding themselves to God completely and holy, understanding that it all came from him. They trusted that it would be handled appropriately because it was he who selected the apostles and therefore they knew they would be acting in accord with his will. Now, the apostles are a little bit different than people in today's world. And, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, you can go on with that all day long, but just it, it's good to trust people, but it's also good to verify. Don't be, uh, what's the, the term? Uh, don't be misguided or whatever by people just because they say one thing and they don't do it. Always, always verify. Life application. The amount of the Macedonians' love for the Lord and their trust for the apostles is evident in this verse. However, it needs to be understood that not all who claim they are appointed by God actually are. This is what I'm kind of referring to. There are no apostles today. 
anyone can get ordained as a minister and act in a pious manner. If you want to be a minister, say you just want to get ordained, you can go online and you can get ordained for $25. Anybody will do it. And they, they, people make money all the time off of that. You can get ordained for $25. Okay. You can put up, uh, what's that one pastor a couple of years ago he had on his wall? He told his congregation for years that he was a Navy SEAL. He never was, right? You know, people just say things. I don't, you know, whatever. But you just got to be wise in what you do and how you relate. And I'll talk about that in Sunday sermon. Oh, by the way, Sunday sermon. It's, we began with the word of God, okay? And we're ending with the word of God. The word of God, a petition for reason. Like I'm asking you to do here, reason things out on Sunday. I'm going to talk about ways to reason through your life in Christ and your life in relation to the word of God, okay? It's going to be the least doctrine, doctrine sermon you're ever going to hear in your whole life, and yet it will establish your basis for why you believe what you believe, okay? So I hope that you'll uh, uh, tune into it, and I do think that you'll enjoy it, but there you go. I'm asking you to reason here. I'll be asking you to reason on Sunday. Christians individually and collectively as a congregation need to carefully evaluate each individual who seeks to obtain money from them. In all things, be willing to give heartily, but do so cautiously. Okay, 8-6. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. Okay, now Titus is being brought in. He's been sent on a mission to get them prepared for this and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you're going to see, this isn't Paul just saying, uh, you know, give us the money, we're going to take it down, we're going to handle it for you. He offers if, you know, I'm to go along, I will go along as well. You know, he's, he's making absolutely sure that nobody will have any question about the propriety of what he is doing. And we're going to see that, and you'll see it elsewhere, like in the book of Acts, and like I said, I referred to a couple other places. If you take the whole thing in its context, you will see that Paul is being very, very careful. He's being adamant because these people have made a promise, and these people in Jerusalem need this money, but at the same time, he's going to do everything above board with this, okay? The idea of Paul's words here in verse 8-6 is that because of the immense generosity of those in Macedonia, the apostles were greatly encouraged in the idea of gathering the gift for the saints in Jerusalem. They may not have expected such an immense outpouring of generosity. However, if the poor churches of Macedonia could give such a marvelous gift, then perhaps it would be an exceedingly great one when the other offerings of other churches were added into it. With this renewed sense of vigor, it says we urged Titus. As in other instances, Titus has been the front man for such things. He is sent with the desires of the apostles or with their instructions for various things. As he was the one who brought back the report from the Corinthians, which precipitated the writing of this epistle, he would be the logical choice to go back and finish the front work for the offering. As it says, that he had begun as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. Okay, he's obviously the right guy to go. The words, this grace, is certainly speaking of the gift which those in Corinth had promised. With the great show of giving in Macedonia, Paul was truly encouraged to get about the business of a collection from the Corinthians. In addition to the gift itself, the words, this grace, may also be hinting at the other principal tenets of the letter as well. In combining the gift with the doctrinal instruction, there would be a smoothing over of both as they were being worked on at the same time. What is implied in the coming verses is that the Corinthians had talked openly 
and in a large way about helping out in the offering Paul is discussing. By sending Titus along with this letter, he would be preparing them ahead of time for his arrival and keeping them from any embarrassing shortfalls in the actual gift compared to the grand promises of the past. Life application. Paul's use of Titus as a front man for handling the issues which have arisen in Corinth is a wise one. It avoids confrontation by having the issues settled without his personal intervention. Keeping such matters at the lowest level possible will normally avoid hierarchical conflicts which may otherwise arrive. And that's why they have in the U.S. military something called the chain of command. That's right. And you try to delegate to the lowest level possible. If somebody's incompetent, you got to move it up one, but there's still billions of people in between you and there. And that guy up there may never even know the name of all the people in his squadron or group or whatever. Okay, but you keep things at the lowest level possible. It's always the best way to handle things in that regard. Same thing here. Okay, eight seven. Just remember, it's tied us, not tied us. Tied us. Yeah, he didn't tie us. That's true. Very well said. But as you abandon, as you abound in everything, in faith, speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound. Grace also. Okay, he's pushing them along. You can see that. Paul has been speaking to the Corinthians in a narrative fashion, explaining the events which have occurred concerning the giving of those in Macedonia. He now turns to, to exhortation in his address to them in order to spur them on to giving. In his words, he gives them hearty acknowledgments of their strengths in Christ. He says first, but as you abound in everything, it is a way of saying that they have been given richly supplied. They have been richly supplied in so many ways. Though the list he will give includes spiritual gifts, he is certainly making a contrast to the deep poverty, as he said, of the Macedonians, which he previously mentioned. Due to their abounding, which surely included physical blessings as well as spiritual blessings, they should be able to supply a great gift to the saints in Jerusalem, just as those in Macedonia did. He notes their faith, speech, knowledge, diligence, and love. He has addressed these attributes in one way or another already, and now he combines them to show how greatly God has lavished his grace upon them. Now he turns and exhorts them to see that you abound in this grace also. When speaking of giving, that's the, the context of what he's doing, see that you abound in this grace also. It would be contrary for them to possess so many wonderful abilities and yet fail in the ability to share their material wealth with those who had less than they did. God had supplied their every need, and now they were being shown a need in others that they could participate in alleviating. Paul has carefully tied all of these things into one summary exhortation to show them that they were in fact blessed in a very marvelous way, and so they should be able to respond out of their abundance. As I said, it was, I don't remember which sermon, but it was a little while ago, three, four weeks ago, is that every, if everybody in America were the most blessed nation in the history of the world, no nation has been more blessed than we have been. If everybody in this nation was committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we were a people that were truly what we claim to be on Sunday morning, or, you know, we get these people up in Congress that are always quoting the Bible that are so far from God that, you know, it, it, they don't even know who he is. But if we were all as we say we are in this nation, 
every single person on this planet would be evangelized within about two years. There would not be a single place left that wasn't to be evangelized. We have enough money to do that, but our priorities are so wrong in so many ways that it's going to take many years of people struggling, struggling overseas to get this done. But it will happen. Eventually, everybody on this planet will hear the, the gospel message. But, you know, you just think of our priorities in this nation with all the abundance that we have, all of the wealth that we have, and yet the gospel message still needs to go to how many countless groups of people that don't even have a single word of the Bible in their own language. Whatever. Life application. How much do you feel you have been blessed by the Lord? Have you considered that the gifts which have been lavished down upon you have been provided so that you could in turn help others? One can demonstrate their gratefulness to God by returning a portion of that to help the needs of others, whatever they may be. Okay, you might have uh, the ability to go downtown on Saturday and help people for one day a week, or you may have the ability to send money to missionaries, or you may have the ability, whatever, but you certainly have the ability, okay? Not everybody, I'm just saying in a general sense, people that are listening certainly have the ability. Do it. Okay, 8-8. Eight, eight. I speak not by commandment. But I am testing your sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Okay, that's kind of poking them, isn't it? It is. It's definitely poking them. You can see that he is really trying to stimulate them. All right, Paul adds in a caveat to his words of the previous verse concerning the giving of a gift to the saints in Jerusalem. He had shown how great the gift of the Macedonians was despite their immense poverty in order to spur them on to giving as well. Also, in the previous verse, he challenged them to exceed in the gift of giving, just as they had exceeded in other gifts. However, this was a challenge or even a plea, but it was not a commandment. Remember, he wrote here in chapter 9, and we're going to get to it in a few minutes probably, he wrote to them and saying not to uh, be, what was it, seven, uh, let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. He's not going to contradict himself here. He may, you know, twist the uh, screwdriver in a little bit, but he is not going to contradict himself. He is trying to get them to reason their state through their great abundance and what they can do about the poverty of somebody else. It's not by commandment, okay? The implication is that he had no instructions from the Lord concerning such a collection, and he also had no desire to use his apostolic authority in a manner which would impose a collection on them. Rather, he made it a challenge in, as he says, the testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. The word for sincerity here is genesios. It is a word used only by Paul in the New Testament, and it is only used four times. It is the contracted form of the word genesios, which means legitimately born and thus genuine. For example, he calls Timothy his lawful son in the faith in 1 Timothy 1 verse 2. Paul is testing the genuineness of their love in this challenge by comparing it to the earnestness of others, meaning those that he already referred to, the Macedonians. He has tactfully used his words about the Macedonians to spur the Corinthians on as if in an athletic challenge. In essence, who will prevail in this great challenge? Okay, you've got competitors here, you've got competitors here. Let's go to battle and see who's going to win. That's what he's doing. Like I said, now these are very poor people, and so they gave a lot out of their poverty, but these are richer people, the Corinthians, and how much can they give and it's not just that they give more than the Macedonians, because that may not be very much in relation to how much they make. If they give the same in relation to what they make, it may be a huge amount of money. So he's trying to spur them on to this. Okay? 
life application, there's nothing wrong with spurring the members of the congregation on to greater giving. As I said, I was in that church for quite a few years, and they spurred you on like you can't believe. When it was time to get the mission budget together, they would spur you on. And they like they bring in the missionaries, and they'd have bands, you know, a little bluegrass band would come in and play, and it was it was just great. And they'd always have a potluck. Remember over there, great food, man. Potluck is the best. I'm telling you, because you never know what you're going to get, and it's always somebody trying to outdo somebody else. So it's always going to be good. But yeah, anyway, it was for a, it, for a Baptist to be in the church, they got to have a thirteen by eight. Ten, yeah, that's right. They got that. That's a requirement. You got to have a thirteen by eight pan if you're in a Baptist church. That is correct. And it may be filled with meat and potatoes. It may be filled with a uh, uh, pie. Whatever. It's going to be filled. Okay. However, do so. Uh, let me read that again. There's nothing wrong with spring others on in the congregation in order to give greater. However, to do so with the implied or actual commands which do not exist is inappropriate. New Testament churches have no standing orders concerning giving other than a subjective give as you have prospered. That's it. Tithing is not something mandated in the New Testament. Instead, it was annulled along with the entire Old Testament law, meaning the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. Does anybody know where that is recorded? Because I've said it already. I want to make sure everybody is versed on it. Where is it recorded that the Old Covenant is done? Hebrews. 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 Seven, eight, and ten. Thank you. That was very good. You got one out of three. Okay. I'm going to take you right now. It says, Hebrews 7, verse 18, for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment. Annulling means it is done. Annulled means it is done. Annulled means it is done. The former commandment is speaking of the law of Moses because of its weakness and unprofitableness. The law of Moses is weak. It's unprofitable. Why would you want to go back under the law of Moses? Which is exactly what the Hebrew roots people, the Seventh-day Adventists, etc. do. They reimpose it. They set aside the grace of Christ. They are not Christians, okay? And then in chapter 8, verse 13, it says, in that he says a new covenant, meaning Christ's covenant, the new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. That's right, obsolete. It's a three-letter word, which means you are required to do this still. No, it means you are done with it. It is done. It is gone, okay? And then in chapter 10. It does say this elsewhere implicitly at least four more times in the book of Hebrews. These three are explicit. This is Hebrews 10 verse 9. He takes away the first. He's speaking about the old covenant. Okay, he takes away the first. Yes, that he may establish the second. You can't have a second until the first is taken away. Those are explicit references to the ending of the Mosaic law, including the doctrine of tithing, which even if you teach tithing, you're teaching it wrong because you're telling people to tithe 10% every year. So stop doing that. And then in Colossians 2, verse 14, it says, having wiped out, this is the law of Moses. Okay, here's a tablet. I know that's a terrible tablet because it's my left hand, but those are tablets having wiped out. Okay, that's what wiped out means. It means to get rid of. I don't know if you've heard that term before, but wipe out means to do this, okay? So having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, meaning the Mosaic Covenant, that was against us. It was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And as I say, every time I read that verse, did somebody go up to Jesus' cross with a copy of the Ten Commandments and tack it into the cross? No. Christ is the embodiment of the Mosaic law. He embodies it because he fulfilled it. And when he died, it died with him. Everybody got that? Because if it didn't, you are still in your sins because by the law is the knowledge of sin. 
but without law, sin is not imputed. God is not imputing man's sins to him. He's reconciling us, 2 Corinthians 5.19. So the law is done. It is done. Okay, let's go on. Um, where was I? Oh, wrong here. Okay, um, yeah, 8.9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become some of the poorest people on this planet are Christians, okay? Some of the poorest people on this planet. And yet they are more wealthy than the wealthiest person on this planet. What's that guy's name? Amazon? Uh, uh, Bezos. Bezos. I don't care how much money he has or Bill Gates or anybody else. They are in poverty right now and they don't even know it. They don't know their poverty compared to a Christian in the poorest situation with no clothes. They're in poverty. Context is important to understand Paul's introduction of this verse. He has been speaking to the Corinthians about giving for the collection of the saints in Jerusalem. He has mentioned the extreme poverty of those in Macedonia, but they gave in an immense way out of their poverty. Think of that wonderful family that took care of me and uh, uh, what was his name? Um, why can't I remember the boy's name now? Come on, Charlie. Anyway, that went around me. They went out of their poverty and spent their last $10 of the week to make that spaghetti supper for us to send us on our way. Now to show the highest form of giving ever known, he turns to the greatest example of it, that of Christ Jesus. He begins with, for you know. Cameron, that's his name, Cameron. I haven't thought of him in a while, so sorry. Um, for you know. The message of what Christ did was known to the Corinthians, but now Paul will explain it in a new way to them unpackaging the mystery of Christ in a way which will hopefully spur them on to a great demonstration of giving as well. Expanding on his words, we read, this is an expansion of it, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 7, he just said to them, but as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. In order to show them how to conduct themselves in this grace also, he reminds them of the same type of grace seen in the Lord. This then is speaking less of the theological idea of grace and more of the act of generosity and giving, which he mentioned in Corinthians to the Corinthians in verse 7. And so we could paraphrase this, for you know the generous giving of our Lord Jesus Christ. In explanation of this, he says that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. This is something that we often think about when considering Christ, but not in any specific sense. And so Paul says it directly to help us think it through directly. He possessed all of heaven's riches, power, and authority, and yet he voluntarily gave it all up for our sakes. The Greek word for he became poor is in the aorist tense, and it therefore refers to the very moment when he became a man. He set aside all of the glory and splendor of heaven and united with the dust which he created. He became weak and poor in order to demonstrate his love for us. The word poor is, help, is defined by Help's word studies as to become utterly poor, meaning destitute, hence to become extremely vulnerable or helpless. Christ put him in that position for you. As a human baby, he lay utterly helpless. As a child of Joseph and Mary, he was in such poverty that the sacrifice recorded in Luke chapter 2 
which is offered for purification according to the law was, anybody know? Two turtle doves. That's right. Pigeons are turtle doves. Such a sacrifice was allowed for the very poorest people of the land who could not afford a lamb offering. That is found in Leviticus 12, verse 8. His parents could not afford a lamb. They had to, it was, if you can't afford this, you can give this. If you can't afford this, you can get this. And if you can't afford this, you can give this. It was the very poorest person of all that gave these two turtle doves. From his entrance into the world and for the rest of his life, he remained completely poor, even as a beggar would live. In Luke 8, verse 3, it says that there were certain women, as it says, and many others who provided for him from their substance. This state of abject poverty was the state of his life. And yet in John 16, 15, he told the apostles that all things that the Father has are mine. In his earthly life, heaven's riches were set aside in order to accomplish his mission for the very creatures who had continuously shunned him. His state of going from heaven's throne to the footstool of the earth is well summed up in Philippians chapter 2, where it says this. Philippians chapter 2. I went too far. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. Paul finishes his words to them showing that all of this was accomplished so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Those at Corinth may have wondered what type of giving would be appropriate. Paul showed them that the ultimate example of giving is found in Christ who had redeemed them. There is no amount they could give that would ever be truly exhausted. They had been raised to heaven itself and to all of its riches because of Christ Jesus. Their true wealth would never end. And so whatever they gave would not affect them in any permanent sense. Life application, Paul wrote to the Corinthians concerning giving. In doing so, he wrote to us also. We are included in that epistle if we have called on Jesus Christ. Therefore, we should remember that Christ gave up everything for us in order to live in this temporary world. As this is so, we should have no problem giving up any part of this temporary world because he has given all things to us. We have an eternal future with an everlasting fount of riches ahead of us. What a great God. What a wonderful God. The Gospels, it says, Son of Man has not place to lay his head. Yes. I don't know exactly where that is. I don't know, but that's true. He had nowhere to lay his head. He just slept on the way and, uh, you know, it's just amazing. Amazing to consider the life that he lived for us. Amazing. 810. And in this, I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago. Okay, Paul is very careful to make a distinction between his advice and the Lord's commands. This follows the same line of wording then as verse 8, which said, I speak not by commandment. Despite being an apostle, he never wanted to overstep his bounds of authority. However, he was also one wise in the way of conducting such affairs, and so he voluntarily continues with his advice. In his counsel, he says, It is to your advantage 
not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago. Though the idea won't be finished until the next verse, we can get enough sense of what Paul means now. The Corinthians had made it known a year earlier that they desired to assist in this offering. Because they had so spoken, he desired that they now fulfill what they had indicated. However, Paul inverts what we would naturally consider the normal line of reasoning. He would be more expected for him to say, what you desire to do, you should now do. Instead, he puts the doing ahead of the willingness to do. He may be making an ironic statement to them that they are the ones who now have their priorities out of order. Why should they be prompted to do what they said they would do? Is kind of the question there. Another option is that their willingness to make a collection should now be turned into an even greater collection than originally intended, adding a year of willingness to a moment of promise. Paul will tell them in the next chapter that God loves a cheerful giver. In their cheerfulness to the promise, they should also be cheerful in the fulfillment of the promise. In, this, in his advice, there is always the notion that even if the advice is personal, he is still an apostle who is speaking the words of God in, that he intends for his sheep. Paul has been given care of those sheep, and therefore his words should be trusted and they should be acted upon. Life application, we have Paul's words as doctrine for the church age. Let us pay heed to them as if we believe that they are exactly what the Bible reveals they are, the very words of God which are intended to guide us in holy and right living. Question. Question. Okay. So there's a need. Yes. In you know, it's not like they picked up their cell phone and said, hey, we got a need, and stuff like that. He's going to all these churches, which is taking a long time. I right. don't know whether uh, Corinth was the first or the last he was at, but they said they would do it a year ago. Right. And now they're, you know, going to get it together. So how much time passed before the I don't know. It's, of the I'm need sure it's been a the, year. I, I'd have to go back to Acts and redo the uh, the figuring, but it's been quite a while because he's already sent the letter. He's been up to Macedonia, et cetera. So there's, there's a, a gap in the amount of time. But, you know, things back then, they just traveled. So I'm going to talk about that in our opening on, uh, on uh, Sunday. Everything to us is right now. We think of everything as right now, and it's not always been that way. Even just a few years ago, there was no right now. And so that'll be my opening comments on Sunday sermon is about how things have hurried up and how it's it's kind of diminished our attitude in a lot of areas. It should not diminish our attitude. So we need to be careful about that. And you'll hear that on Sunday. Um, uh, before I go on, we have, as always, it, Wade uh, last week did a great picture. I said that if you looked at it as President Trump sitting at his desk in the White House and watching the superior word Bible study, okay? It was very well done. My wife didn't see that last week. She saw it this morning and she laughed so hard. I thought she was going to pass out. She really, and she said, would you print that off for me? I got to show the people at work. But he did something this morning, which was, it was unbelievable. If you haven't seen it, you need to watch it. Go to the Superior Word um, YouTube channel. And under the two Corinthians Bible study is a one minute, about a minute and 15 second long, minute and 40 second long. It's a very short little video. It's a video about Bible study. And so if you haven't seen it, please make a note. And when you we finish the class, just click on the Superior Word channel, go to the 2 Corinthians Bible study playlist, and just click on that short little advertisement for 
the superior word. It was marvelous. Wade does such a marvelous job. He, everything he does is just quality. I don't know. I think he just sits up and dreams stuff up. I don't know. I, I Amazing. Anyway, 811. Go ahead. But now, you also must complete the doing of it. That, that as there was a readiness to desire it, there so there also may be a completion out of what you have what you have. What you have. That That's right. It, it is. It's a cumbersome verse. And, and what he's saying is, you know, you had a desire. Now you need to follow through. Yeah. Your ability. Yeah. And your ability. That's right. Now, remember, you got a year and you promised something. And a year later, you haven't done anything about it. Now you've got to make up for that year. Okay. That's an embarrassing position to be in. I mean, it, it just is. So he's telling them, you know, this is something that is now coming due. It's a bill that's coming due. And you, you need to think this through. Okay. Paul's last verse, which continues on in this one, said, it is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago. He completes the thought beginning with, but. There was a desire to act, but then action went no further. Now he admonishes them to act, spurring them on as the time for the collection drew near. In essence, now is the time you must complete the doing of it. Words of action with, without follow-up are simply vapor that disappears into the air. Nobody has helped through them, and people will gauge another's quality of their character, at least in a large measure, from the action or lack of action which arises based on the words spoken. In order to ensure that the Corinthians will be viewed in a positive light in this respect, he continues with, that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. The Corinthians, about a year earlier, eagerly spoke their intentions to help the saints in Jerusalem. However, nothing further had come about from their words, and a year had slipped by. The time for finally proving their intent had come. Should they not fulfill their words, the gift taken to Jerusalem would be smaller, and there would be no commendation for those in Corinth. No letter of thanks and no gratitude for their loving assistance. The words they spoke would turn out to be that disappearing breath that merely faded away. Concerning the words out of what you have, Vincent's word studies notes that Meyer justly remarks that it would be an indelicate compliant to the inclination of the readers that it had originated from their possession. Render according to your ability. In other words, translating this out of what you have makes it sound like anything given from them excluded God's hand of grace in it. But all things originally come from God, and therefore by restating it to say according to your ability allows for the hand of God to be seen in what was given to them as being passed on from them. This then would be perfectly in line with Paul's note concerning the giving of the Macedonians back in verses 1 through 5, which opened us today. Life application. If you are going to boast about doing something, it is right that you follow up by doing it. Better yet, don't boast at all. Just do it. Okay, 812. 820 of Matthew. 820 Matthew. Go ahead and read it. Oh, read it real loud. Hold on, hold on. I got to get it. Oh, you don't have it there? I got it, but oh. I, I closed it. Well, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I'm going to beat you. said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's Matthew 820? 820. 820. Make a note. Okay, I'll never remember that. I can't remember verses to save my life. All right, some people it, remember verses. 
What's that? I can't save my life. Only Jesus can do that. He shoots. He scores. Jesus saves. Okay, 812. Or if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. Paul now makes a point to the Corinthians, not unlike that made by the Lord in Luke 21. Let me read to you what he says there in Luke 21. Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Okay, Luke, uh, come on, Charlie. 21, and then in verses 1 through 4, he says, And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury, and he saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow is put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. The New King James Version here, following after the King James Version, um, by indicating that if there is first a willing mind, this is an error regarding Paul's intent. He is not saying this as if indicating a sequence of events in time. Instead, he intends to convey the matter in a positional way. Most other translations rightly say something to the effect that if the willingness is there or if the eagerness is there. Paul is saying that the disposition of the individual is what makes an offering acceptable or not, regardless of the size of the gift. As I said, if you don't have faith in what you're doing, God's not going to give you a reward for it. It doesn't matter how big or small your gift is or what your gift is. It makes no difference. Disposition in your heart is what the Lord is reading. If one eagerly and with a right heart gives just 30 cents, they are doing well. However, someone gives $1 million with the wrong intent, why would they be credited with an acceptable gift? The world focuses on the size of the gift, but God focuses on the intent behind the gift. That's right, the heart. Understanding this, we can see that a gift is based on the heart of the giver and it is according to what one has. That's Paul's words, according to what one has. The poor man with little can still give a grand gift out of his few possessions. It is accepted then, not according to what he does not have. If this was, then only the gifts of the wealthy would be acceptable, regardless of the amount given in comparison to the amount that they possess. Everybody see that? A wealthy person, only their gifts apply because... It only matters what you have. And Paul says it's exactly the opposite. Life application. If your heart is right in your giving, then you will be blessed as you give. Okay. The most giving person I ever knew in my life. You, she knows who I'm going to say. I had a grandmother that would, if you walked into her house, she had nifty things. It was the most incredible place you ever walk into. And you'd never say, isn't that beautiful? Because if you did, you were walking out with it. I don't care what it was. It didn't matter what was in that house. If somebody came in and complimented it, it went out with that person. And you just learned to never say anything. You just, she may have found the most astonishing thing you've ever, you just go, oh my God, that is, you know, a little intricate thing made in China that it probably took Wang Chung 400 years to put together. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And intricate and you'd think oh it's a beautiful possession and i'd say oh grandma that's so cool oh i want you to have that is that what you did with Hedico? And that's what i did with Hedico. yeah i said oh i really like that girl she's like <laughs> good job bert okay uh where are we 813 go ahead for i do not mean that others should go be eased and you bert this is in line with the previous verse which said for if there is a willing mind it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. 
Paul's logic is that when one gives, it should be according to what one has. However, in verse 3, he said this about those in Macedonia. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability. He has shown that the Macedonians gave even beyond their ability in a manner that would cause them to have to give up their own necessities in order to assist those in Jerusalem. However, he explained that they did it freely and without being persuaded. Understanding this context, he now says four. This is based on the preceding verse and his thought of giving out of what one has. He's not trying to persuade them to do what those in Macedonia had done willingly. Instead, he simply means that they should give in order to help those in need. But, as he says, not that others should be eased and you burdened. He's not asking for that. Would it make sense that the gift to those in Jerusalem be so large that they could then live lavishly while the givers of the gift had to sacrifice? In that case, a collection from Jerusalem would be needed to give to these Gentiles who just gave. It would make no sense. Paul is simply asking them to give in a manner by which none would be impoverished, but that all would be comforted. In his next verses, he will explain this. This is the fallacy of thinking of those on the left in our society. They want to take everything from those that have and give the, to those that don't have, and pretty soon, nobody will have anything. That is just the way that socialism is. It's always proven that way. It's always happened that way, and there will be no exception when it comes to the United States of America. People have to earn, they have to save, and in fact, the Bible says in Proverbs, save for your children's children. Okay, yes, for your grandchildren, if you want to paraphrase it. Okay, I'm kidding. Um, save for your children's children. So there is something to be said about giving, and at the same time, there's something to be said about saving. The two are not contradictory, and in fact, the more you save, the more you are able to give. Okay. I'm just going to give an example. I'm not saying it's my two children, but if I have two children and one of them saves their money and saves their money and saves their money, eventually they'll buy a house and they'll buy a car and they'll have nice things and they'll be able to give. And if the other one just spends his money and spends his money and spends his money, he will never have anything. He will never be able to pay his bills and he will be able to give nothing. That is how the world works. The United States was founded on the principle that we are to be industrious. We are to work hard and we are to save not to have taken from us what we save, and then we can give. That's always been the way it is, and it doesn't work any other way. We just have to keep that in mind. If you save, you can give. If you don't save, you cannot give, okay? Even the people in Macedonia saved something because they were able to give. That's right. That's exactly right, okay? So, he's simply asking them to give in a manner which none would be impoverished. Life application. Sometimes... In our zeal to give for a worthy cause, we may promise more than we actually intended to. In such a case, it is appropriate that we give according to the promise. We are to, as he said earlier, pay our vows. Think carefully about what you intend to do before you do it so that you don't later regret what you have done. But if you've made a vow, you are to pay your vow, okay? That, that is not an old covenant principle. That is a principle of simple logic. It's a principle of, if it's in the Psalms, it's not an old covenant. It's just a wisdom. The Psalms, Proverbs, Psalms, Job, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon are called books of wisdom because they impart wisdom to you. And when you apply that wisdom to your life, you will generally be better off than if you don't. I shouldn't say generally, you will be, okay? Take what is said in those books of wisdom 
and apply them to your life. Okay, save for your children's children, and yet at the same time, extend your hand to anybody that has a need. It's just the way it is. Okay, go ahead, 814. But by inequality, that now, at this time, your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance may also supply your lack, that there may be equality. Okay, am I going to be able to get verse 15? Because... I don't think so. We're just going to have to stop with 8.14. That's too bad because 8.15 finishes the thought and it goes right back to the law of Moses and the book of Exodus where they gathered manna. But we'll get that next week. The last words that Paul said concerned the state which existed between those in Corinth and those in Jerusalem. It was not, Paul, it was not Paul's intent that one party should be burdened while another party was eased. Instead, he now explains that he is looking for a state of equality. If equality exists, then neither is burdened. As the Corinthians were not in a state of need, as shown in the words, now at this time, your abundance, they would be able to supply in the lack, the state of need to those in Jerusalem. Noting that this is appropriate, he further explains that their abundance also may supply your lack. Although unstated, it may be that he was thinking on the lines of material blessings from one and spiritual blessings from the other. This idea is nicely stated in Romans chapter 15, where Paul says in verse 27, Romans 15, 27, it pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Okay? As those in Jerusalem had supplied spiritual blessings to those in Corinth, it was only right that those in Corinth therefore supply material blessings to those in Jerusalem. Whether this is his thought or whether he was looking forward to a time when the tables were turned and Corinth would be in material need cannot be stated with certainty. But Paul is given, giving a summary of what is right and proper between brothers when needs exist. He is writing in hopes, as he says, that there may be equality. It is important to understand that he is writing about equality within the Christian community. He is not writing about global equality where the hard work of those who are diligent to get up and produce each day is robbed from them in order to pay for those who are indolent. He is also not writing about Christians being forced to pay for Muslims who have evil intent towards those who would help them. The state of today's world, where leaders of both governments and religions are purposely robbing from Mike to pay for Manuel or Muhammad, is unbiblical and harmful to the proper functioning of a society. Life application. Don't be fooled by Pope or President that you have no right to what you have earned. Tell them to go earn their own money and pass that on to those they wish, while you will be help, willing to help your Christian brothers or whoever else you feel it is appropriate to tend to. Okay, we're just, yeah, I don't think we better get in. Yeah, let's do 8.15. Okay, let's just do it. Go. Oh, here we go. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over. He who gathered little had no lack. Okay, we're going to do that, and we're going to stop in verse 8.16 for next week. Okay, 8.15. Paul now cites Scripture to demonstrate that what has occurred among the early church was not unlike what occurred among the early redeemed congregation of Israel. Shortly after departing from Egypt, the Lord provided the people manna for their sustenance. The account encompasses Exodus 16, but the portion which Paul cites is to be found in Exodus 16, 
15 through 18. Exodus 16, 15 through 18 says, 16, 15. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who, lacked, who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. The gathering of the collection for the saints in Jerusalem was a collection of love intended to meet their needs, just as the manna from the Lord was an act of love towards his people Israel. The people went out and gathered each morning and brought it into the camp, and when it was divided up between them, it was found that the exact amount needed for all of the people had been gathered. In this, Paul is not demonstrating a socialist or a communist attitude. Rather, he is citing the scripture in order to show that what the people possessed ultimately came from God, and it would be inappropriate for other brothers to lack while they had an overabundance. These verses cannot be used to justify government robbing of one group in order to pay for another. First, there is a collection based on free will giving. Secondly, it is intended only for Christians in need, not the society at large. Third, those in Corinth were not asked to sell any possessions or land in order to make the contributions. They were asked to provide willingly out of whatever they possessed. Fourth, the account of the manna in the wilderness ended when Israel came into the land of promise and a new economy was introduced. Life application, we are just on time. If you hear a socialist or a commie use the Bible to justify their ungodly stand, ignore them. They are manipulators of God's word with evil intent. Tell them to get to work and earn their own keep. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the chance to come and to uh, lift up the people we mentioned at the beginning of this service. And once again, we want to thank you for the salvation that was found when Lee got back home and embraced his friend in Christian love for the first time. What a blessing. And we lift up all the people we mentioned at the beginning of the service. We ask that you be with them in a real way. And if it uh, brings anybody to salvation, then the affliction, whatever is being faced, is certainly worth it. So we're thankful for that. But at the same time, we uh, would pray that you would be with them in their times of affliction. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this precious word you've given us. It is a gift all by itself. It is more valuable than all the gold and silver that could ever be heaped up on this planet. It, that is nothing compared to what you have given us in Christ Jesus and the word which reveals him and your heart for us. And so we thank you for it and we love you and we praise you and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, get this off before we go over. Let's see, you're going to break.